Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Before we begin today's podcast, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people on whose land we broadcast from today and recognise their elders past, present and emerging and pay my respects to their contribution to the life of this city and region. Okay, so today is a Work With Purpose episode with a difference. Um, We are going to be joined by Professor Mark Evans and Michelle Grattan, the famous Australian Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery journalist, and I'll, I'll come to their introductions in a moment. But we are programming in response to feedback from the membership that they want to hear different voices and different views. Now, IPA is a non-partisan organisation that does provide a platform for discussion and debate about all things public administration. And we do hope that this podcast does inspire and provoke some thoughts with you. And certainly IPA remains uh, committed to promoting excellence in public administration. Along with large departments and agencies, IPA's members also include people who work outside of the APS who are interested in public administration. But certainly, this is an episode with a slight difference. It certainly expresses opinions probably a little bit more strongly than we would normally have here on Work With Purpose. But again, that is what the audience is looking for. And that is indeed what we are providing for you today on this particular episode. Now, Professor Mark Evans is Director of Democracy 2025 and Professor of Governance at the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra. He was formerly Director of the Worldwide Universities Public Policy Network, Vice President of the Joint University Council for the Applied Social Sciences, Head of Politics at the University of York in the United Kingdom, and Dean of the Faculty of Business, Government and Law at the University of Canberra. Mark has played an international role in supporting governments to change their governance practices and has acted as a senior policy advisor and managed research and evaluation projects in 26 countries, the European Union, the United Nations and the World Bank. Mark is an IPA ACT councillor and in October 2020 was awarded an IPA National Fellow for his outstanding contribution to public service and to IPA. Michelle Grattan AO is one of Australia's most respected political journalists. She has been a member of the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery for more than 40 years, during which time she has had a front row seat on most of the big stories in Australian politics. She was the former editor of the Canberra Times, was political editor of The Age and has been uh, also reporting with the Australian Financial Review and the Sydney Morning Herald. Michelle currently has a dual role with an academic position at the University of Canberra and as Associate Editor of Politics and Chief Political Correspondent at The Conversation. She's also the author and co-author and editor of several books and she was made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2004 for her long and distinguished service to Australian journalism. Now, these are two of the finest minds in Australia, and I'm sure you'll enjoy their conversation. 
Mark, it's been such an extraordinary year, one that we could have never contemplated, I think. So shall we begin with some personal reflections on how the year has struck us? Yes, I I think it's been a particularly surreal um, year for me, um, largely because my family is, is based in the United Kingdom. Um, and every night I've been having chats with them and of course they've been going through a, a much more serious crisis than, than than we have my dad lives in in Lancashire in a place called Clitheroe and within literally a, a 20 kilometer radius of him ten and a half thousand people have have died during during the COVID-19 period so obviously that that means that lived lived experience has a big impact on how you cope and how you respond to COVID-19 and I think possibly because of that um, I've been a lot more um, emotional in terms of my response to the crisis than probably a lot of my 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 colleagues and and peers so obviously as a social science that's meant that I've had to um, default to the evidence as much as possible to make sure that I just don't get over-emotional um, about the crisis. I suppose my experience has been a, a bit of a contrast to that because I've been in Canberra all through and not had any uh, direct personal connections uh, due to COVID or, or family crises or anything of that sort. So you're very aware in Canberra of how lucky we are. Cases were soon eliminated. The restrictions were soon relaxed. But nevertheless, it the whole thing was very unreal. There was an air of anxiety around the place. Uh, I've worked all through in Parliament House, but Parliament House became a sort of ghost town. People in masks, politicians not here for uh, a very long time. And then when they did return, there were only some of them and really no one wandered around and... Uh, and saw people or very few people did. So it was uh, such a, a strange atmosphere, such a, an uncertain atmosphere, even in parts where things were, were pretty good comparatively. It's hard to even mm. imagine what it would have been like for all those months in Victoria. I was dealing uh, with colleagues in Victoria and, of course, they were scattered to the four winds in, in their uh, lounge rooms or studies or bedrooms on Zoom calls. Uh, the whole thing was extraordinarily difficult for them. And as I think you said earlier this morning as well, that... Um, um, it's very psychological in terms of, terms of its effects because, in theory, it should be much easier for us to go about doing our, our business, but it's still very sticky. Doing, doing the work is, is much stickier than I, than I imagined it, it would be because of the, the psychology of COVID-19 and how it impacts on colleagues in in, in very, very different ways. And, and doing things at a distance is easier at one level but more difficult at another because it's so abnormal, I guess. Uh, it's mm. 
going out to the University of Canberra campus, for example, uh, during some of this time as, as we got back to doing face-to-face -face videos and seeing hardly any people around and mm. uh, things not open, it, it all seemed quite weird. Well, you've got that distinction as well, haven't you, between the, the kind of the public and the private realm. Um, I mean, in your work, you're more often than not in the public realm and less in the private realm. But because of COVID-19, we're much more pushed into the private realm. We're at home. We're in our heads much more. And for me, that, that, that brings some real challenges as well in terms of public policy debate, because in many ways, we've been leaving it up to the politicians. And in times of crisis, may, maybe that's okay. Right? Maybe it's okay to leave it up to the politicians. But now that we're looking to recovery, we need to be having a much more forensic debate about the future in the public realm. But I still get the sense that people really aren't focusing on the big issues in the way that they should be. Well, I think they've pushed the politicians aside uh, to a certain extent, or at least the political fighting aside, uh, even though, in a sense, they've become so much more dependent on government. Let's perhaps turn to the question of mm. political trust and uh, how that fits in, because your work in particular has... Um, concentrated on that over a number of years now. How do you see the question of political trust and how is it changing in this situation? So our starting point um, in terms of defining political trust is the, is the seminal um, definition that's used by Mark Hetherington, the American political scientist. And he defines political trust as, I quote, keeping promises and agreements and thereby holding positive perceptions about people in government and their actions. Um, but as you know, we've also been, been asking this question to um, Australians all over Australia over the last three years. Um, we've asked them um, what trust means to them. Um, and they emphasise very similar things. They emphasise the importance of um, politicians having integrity, um, being honest, open and transparent. Um, they emphasise the importance of, of empathy, that politicians should, should care about the issues that they care about and they should respect their, their views. Um, they emphasise the importance of delivery. So this is the sort of not breaking promises issue. But actually, it's a little bit more than that. It's... Um, they, they expect people to change their minds about issues because, of course, um, in their everyday lives, they change their decisions all the time. But they expect politicians to explain why they've, they've changed their minds. Um, and then, and this is a, a bit of a, a change to, um, to public opinion, there's an expectation for loyalty from government that uh, politicians should have their back. Um, they should look after um, Australian citizens. Um, so, of course, many many of the listeners of this podcast will be aware uh, that literally since the end of the Howard period, there's been a um, over a decade of decline in in public trust, um, and essentially we've seen public trust um, decline from forty three percent in in two thousand and seven to twenty five percent last year. Um, 
And alongside that, there's been a corresponding decline of trust in political institutions um, and the media, um, and in particularly um, political parties. But astonishingly, since COVID-19, trust in people in government has literally doubled. It now stands at, at 54%. Um, trust in the Australian Public Service has increased from 39% to 54%. So in a very, very short period of time, trust in, particularly in, in executive government, um, in Commonwealth government, has increased very significantly. Um, and this is partly explained by what's called the rally around the flag phenomenon. So in times of crisis, um, Australians historically tend to be much more patriotic. Um, but also it's a response to some good early decision making um, and effective governance on, on the COVID-19 issue as well. So it's a combination of rally around the flag and effective governance and a shift towards more collaborative problem solving. So we found in our, we've, do, we've <coughs> done two recent surveys on, on trust in times of coronavirus, um, comparing uh, the views of Australian citizens with the views of citizens in the United States, in Italy, in the United Kingdom. And what has set Australia apart um, has been the belief that um, Australia has engaged in much more of a collaborative approach in terms of problem solving. And also the success, one would think, of the Australian response because despite the Victorian second wave, compared to other countries, and especially now, I think that uh, Australia has been incredibly effective in its policy. Do you also think that people are very pleased to see some uh, diminution of the hyper-partisanship that's uh, been a feature of our politics recently and that that has increased the, the trust factor? And I wonder also whether as politics returns more to normal, the trust will go down somewhat. What do you think about that? Well, um, certainly the, the sort of the standout uh, statistic in, in, in the comparative survey that we did was that um, when, it, when you are citizens in, in the US, the UK and, and Italy, th their views on the performance of their prime minister or, or president, um, they tend to go along partisan lines. Right, so um, people who vote for the opposition have a dim view of the, the performance of their president or prime minister. Not so in Australia. Um, over 50% of, of Labour supporters um, commend the, the, um, the role that uh, Scott Morrison has, has played in, in, in COVID-19. So what that suggests is at the moment at least, Australia is a far less polarised society than um, particularly the UK and the US, as has obviously been demonstrably demonstrated in the, in the US presidential election. The US is a deeply divided country. Um, and so, so there's, a, there's a positive take-home message from that, and that is that it should be easier in the recovery process where there is a political will 
to find common ground here in Australia. Um, and the evidence suggests that those countries that are able to find common ground and build coalition of interest behind a, um, uh, an agreed recovery plan will recover far more quickly than societies that are more polarised. That was the big take-home message, for example, <coughs> from the global financial crisis and the recovery from the global financial crisis. I think the... Um institution of the National Cabinet, which the Prime Minister put together early in the crisis, has been a unifying factor, even though there have been some very sharp divisions and increasing divisions, of course, over the borders, which are now <clears throat> fading out again as, as the borders are starting to come down. But it managed the dissent and division effectively. It was a, an instrument that pushed for consensus but accepted that in our federation when so much of the power <clears throat> rested with the states that um, the differences had to be to some extent accepted and managed. So I think that that was a, a reinforcing factor on, on trust? I think you're absolutely right there again. Um, in terms of uh, our survey data, um, Australians were great champions of the National Cabinet. Um, again, however, we need to see how that develops over, over time because there was also an expectation that, um, that it wouldn't just become um, a hollowed-out COAG, right? That, that there would be more sharing of power that, for example, there would be um, a rotation of the, the chairs of the National Cabinet, um, that states and territories would have the capacity to, uh, to, to make proposals. Um, so, in other words, um, it was envisaged to be much more of an inclusive approach to, to problem solving. Um, now, again, um, it remains to be seen as to, be, as to whether that will be the case once we get into the recovery process and there's much greater contestation around, around resources. I think it's a long-term thing. The, the National Cabinet is likely to be um, able to be less than was promised, frankly, because mm. there will inevitably be divisions between federal and state governments over policies and resources and, and so on. It may be a bit less bureaucratic than uh, COAG, but you would think that uh, it'll revert to uh, an area where there'll be a lot of contesting of, of issues rather than everybody being in the same boat. But certainly for COAG, it's been a very positive development and, of course, arose out of the fact that Scott Morrison realised that the federal government lacked power mm. over some of these areas, over many of these areas, and he was, in a sense, dealing himself into uh, a, a position where he had maximum clout to handle the crisis and he'd learnt about this lack of power... Uh, very uh, harshly during the bushfires when the power um, rested mainly with the states. Yeah, look, I think that's a really, really important uh, um, observation um, because the critics would argue that this is, this is kind of a classic divide and, and conquer 
um, approach. Um, and that um, clearly he learned lessons from the bushfire crisis. Um, interesting enough, in terms of the survey data, in general, Australians prefer, in terms of crisis management, a more centralised approach. Um, so if you look at um, public attitudes on the performance of, of different state, state premiers and chief ministers at the um, territory government level, in general, they're viewed in a very lukewarm way in terms of how they've they've managed the crisis but and then Morrison is 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 way ahead so clearly he's very skillfully used the national cabinet uh to to build his his power base um and to promote his role as uh, as as the key voice in terms of the management of the the, the crisis and and Look, he's, he has done that so far very skillfully, but the big issue is around recovery um, because most economists are now arguing that this is going to be the most profound recession that Australia has experienced in, since the end of the, the, the Second World War. Um, and when resources are tight, um, obviously there are, there's, a, there's going to be a greater ideological battle um, between states, territories and, and Commonwealth government for, for scarce resources. But the recovery uh, sees the main player as the Commonwealth government because recovery, frankly, is all about money, is driven by money mm. and it's where you spend and how you spend that money. And uh, so the, the central players in that become uh, the Commonwealth government and it's its officials and uh, <clears throat> the public service uh, generally. Uh, perhaps we should turn our discussion to the public service and yes, and yeah. how the, the crisis has uh, affected the, the service. I think that the service pre-crisis, the federal public service, was feeling in a very defensive position uh, that... Um, the Morrison government had made it quite clear that uh, it saw the service as implementing an agenda that was very much politically driven, set by the government, and that it didn't really want the public service to have any independent ideas. Uh, it didn't see it as generating policy and, of course, we'd just seen the Thodi review and uh, the Morrison government had rejected a number of uh, the recommendations of Thodi, which would have um, given, I guess, the top of the public service a bit more independence, uh, but the government was having none of that. And yet, paradoxically, of course, when... The crisis hit, we saw in broad terms the role of experts elevated mm. and in specific terms the role of public service advice becoming absolutely crucial to the government. It, mm. it became incredibly dependent on the readout of Treasury as to where things were likely to go economically and how to respond. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's been a, um, an era of, once again, of, of, of evidence-based policymaking. Experts are being taken um, seriously um, once again. 
Um, but look, I, I'm interested in, in, in that, that claim, that general claim that the, that the independence of the Australian Public Service has, has um, decreased in, in recent times. I mean, obviously, you've been commenta commentating on the um, Westminster model for a long period of time. Um, do you think that, that in the independence of the Australian Public Service has been um, undermined? Uh, yes, I do. I think the concept of an independent public service <clears throat> is interesting in itself because, of course, a public service under our Westminster system is there to uh, serve the government of the day. It's the the servant of the people, but also of uh, specifically the government. So independence is always, uh, to some extent, uh, a limited concept. However, I think that uh, we have seen in, in the last uh, few decades and probably specifically the last uh, uh, 30 or so years progressive decline of the uh, independence, the autonomy of the, the service. I think there are a number of factors involved here. The introduction of the contract system for senior, uh, the senior level of the, the service, the secretaries, by the Keating government, I think was a very big marker in terms of um, this um, loss of independence or decline of independence because it did make people at the top much more vulnerable to government pressure and it meant that public servants who <clears throat> the government felt um, were out of favour were really um, not at all secure. Now, they never were entirely secure. We always romanticise things uh, a bit in the past and uh, perhaps you wouldn't want them to be entirely secure, but it became more arbitrary. So, of course, we went through that period of John Howard, the uh, day of the long knives, a, a whole lot of secretaries uh, biting the dust. And uh, recently, in Morrison's time, we saw the same sort of thing, that a number of secretaries were uh, removed because the government wanted to, uh, to shake up the top of the service. I think the fact that it <clears throat> did re, um, reject those uh, Thody recommendations was another sign that uh, it, it was not going to cede any power to the public service, any more power. And um, also, I think that the coalition government has found it politically quite useful to use the public service as a punching bag. It uh, always is inclined to talk about public service fat. The public service is um, a key part of the Canberra bubble. And that sort of goes down quite well as a campaigning tool. So I think that's been another factor. Uh, a further factor has been the increasing power of ministerial advisers over the years. This has perhaps uh, started in the 1970s and has progressively uh, increased. I think the media cycle has meant that 
ministers want uh, public servants to be more attuned to the politics of things, their politics, the minister's politics. And, of course, the notion of the responsiveness of the public service is important here, that, uh, that that's come to the fore in recent times. So there are really multiple factors. Perhaps also one should throw in the fact that uh, the public servants these days are competing much more in a, a bigger pond of advice coming to governments. Whether so in combination, this has kind of un yeah. undermined the cultural authority of the and the role of the public the, service? It's undermined the importance of the public service to governments and it has affected the, uh, the culture in which the public service operates. Public servants are less senior public servants we're talking about here, uh, less revered, I think, than they would have been, uh, you know, in the, in the days of uh, the mandarins of the fifties, mm. sixties. Now, at the same time as we've had this kind of increase in 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 public trust, um, we've also seen a number of quite significant um, corruption scandals. Um, and yet, this doesn't appear to have undermined trust in in, in government more more generally, or will, is, 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 is there a lag going on at the moment? Will that work its way through public opinion um, over the next few months, do you think? I think it depends on how the general story on trust goes. And I think it won't be just the next few months, but probably the next few years where we'll see whether this is just a, a blip or a, a longer term trend in the restoring of trust. But I also think that when people, so many people are preoccupied with their own futures, uh, with their incomes, whether they're retirees suffering loss of income, whether they're workers suffering loss of jobs, uh, whether they're business people finding their businesses are collapsing or on the brink, then <clears throat> they're inclined to push other issues aside. They've got to be pretty big scandals to engage the public who are dealing with fairly desperate situations. Do you, th do you think um, the political class um, is worried about the trust issue? I think that politicians are aware of the problem of lack of trust, but I think that perhaps they feel that it's, it's too generalised to uh, deal with or perhaps it, it's just too uh, non-specific uh, and therefore they, they just live in this world. One of the factors, I think, of lack of trust has been the increasingly bad behaviour of politicians, say, in Parliament. I, I'm not talking scandals here, but more <clears throat> general abuse and, and bad conduct. Well, they know people don't like that and yet they don't seem able to, uh, to reform themselves, basically. And again, do you think the, the three-year electoral cycle plays a role there that um, opposition parties 
um, often think that they just need to um, be a low target and then they'll, they will get their go again. So they're, they're less on the front foot in terms of um, criticising the government around um, the, trust, the trust issues. I think the three-year cycle means that we're always, you know, just a little way away from campaign mode mm. and and that dials up the partisanship and that has implications for trust. Uh, the whole question of opposition at the moment is, I think, quite a vexed one in the COVID crisis because we saw at the beginning the federal opposition saying we want to work cooperatively and dialing down partisanship. But now it feels the need to dial it up again. Mm. And yet, again, ordinary people preoccupied with their own personal big issues don't want all this skirmishing so they don't necessarily uh, attend to to the uh, opposition all that much. So there's been a, a bit of a, a, a desperation, I think, about... Um, how to deal with its situation among members of, of the federal opposition. And this has been quite difficult for Anthony Albanese to negotiate. So what do you think uh, the APS needs to do to um, build stronger trust systems, um, not just with, with government, but with, but with the public more, more generally? Well, obviously, it can't uh, necessarily do much about being a, a punching bag. So it's a victim of other players in the system. For itself, I think that it is well regarded and uh, public trust will be built specifically uh, on performance. So you're, you're dealing with several levels here, but the interface with ordinary people is in service delivery and people will trust and respect the service if they have a good experience when they interact with it. And this is as basic as if they go to Centrelink and find that they get a good response, good service, prompt service, they're helped, then they'll have a positive view. At, at a higher level, I think that the uh, service will be judged on the sort of advice that it gives government and uh, how well that advice or how effective in dealing with the the critical policy problems that come up, uh, that uh, advice proves to be because we are, or the government is, so dependent on the very fine judgments that are now being made week by week, month by month, by the um, officials in Treasury and other areas of government. And <clears throat> we, we do hear about that advice eventually and uh, so... If, if the public services uh, policy advocacy turns out to be sound and we come out of this economic crisis fairly fast and in a reasonable state and minimise the, the, the um, 
costs in terms of unemployment and so on, then I think the public service will receive due credit um, for helping to point to the road ahead. One, one question that I think is worth just exploring here is this whole question, issue of expertise, which we touched on before. Mm. Um, experts came into their own during this crisis and, and still are very well regarded, but it was also interesting at a political level that uh, experts found themselves attacked on some fronts, for example, in the, all that debate about the um, Queensland border, critics focused on the Queensland Chief, Chief Health Officer and said, oh, she's been politicised, she's just doing what the government's wanting or she's too conservative or whatever. Same has happened in Victoria where you had this bizarre situation of the Chief Health Officer becoming a... a a saint to his supporters and a demon to his opponents. There was even merchandise with, you know, his his face on dooners and coffee mm. cups and so on. Uh, and yet his critics were um, very harsh indeed on him. So I think that the journey of experts in this crisis has been fascinating. Mm. But Evans, evidence is always going to be contested, isn't it, in the same way that... Uh, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is probably one of the most contested um, policy um, areas that, that we've seen in, in, in recent times. Um, but I guess people would argue that what is important is that we're having the debate um, rather than there being kind of a, a top-down government-knows-best uh, approach. Um, and um, again, if you look at the, the, the survey data on, on trust... And, and we look at the questions around um, progress, um, what you see time and time again is the view by the majority of Australians that we really haven't made much progress on those big public policy issues really over the last decade, whether you're talking about climate change or whether you're talking about combating poverty or whether you're talking about big decisions in, in foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Australia's relationship with China um, or with the United States. Um, and, and the view, basically, that COVID-19 has, has brought those all, all of those issues into, into sharp focus. Um, so do you think that there is an opportunity now as a consequence of, of that kind of quickening of public policy debate for those big issues to be tackled in a more serious way going forward? Look, I think, Mark, it's hard to know the answer to that question. There was a lot of talk, of course, about how uh, COVID uh, would provide an opportunity for the government to step up on reform. My impression is that this has really not happened or happened to a very limited extent. We'll see soon what the government's proposing on industrial relations, which is often talked about as the big reform area. But I think that uh, there's a certain reform fatigue. Maybe it was there before, but 
perhaps people have become even more fatigued during COVID. So it, those who hoped for, say, an overhaul of the tax system or some such are not going to be um, rewarded, as it were, because I think the federal government recognises that people are not in a mood for great disruption sort of on the back of COVID. But on other fronts, if you take the climate front, I don't think that it's COVID that's going to push this forward, but from Australia's point of view, international uh, developments and pressures, change of administration in the United States, and suddenly the atmosphere that Australia faces on that issue starts to look different. So I think that there are various drivers here, but it's not that the virus is going to produce a, a wide um, uh, transformation I guess of the, the reform is that it's not the virus, it's the economic dislocation that the virus causes. In other words, the, the economic crisis. Um, we know that historically the, the big disruptive events are normally rooted in the changing nature of the, the economy. It doesn't look as if um, Australia's relationship with China is going to get any better for, for some time. It's our largest trading partner. Um, the forecasting is looking pretty dismal. Um, in stable times, you're able to put off the big decisions. But in times of crisis, you're less able to put off the big decisions. So in other words, we, we've, we've not been through this type of crisis before. So is, is that going to provide some sort of shock therapy to the, to the system? Well, if you take the China relationship, uh, what's driving that is, uh, I think, fundamentally, uh, or what's driving the change has been China becoming tougher and more assertive in recent years as its power is, is growing a great deal. And Australia in the uh, COVID debate pushed back by calling for an inquiry into the origins and handling of the virus. And that uh, soured relations, but those relations were already pretty sour. Uh, an Australian Prime Minister hasn't visited China for ages. Ministers had trouble even before getting their calls returned. They don't seem to have any hope of getting them returned now. You had the foreign interference legislation by the Turnbull government, and that was a big marker in the deterioration of the relationship. So actually the COVID uh, issue has, has fed into that deterioration, but I think it's driven by uh, other and more fundamental factors. Mm. So... So, in a sense, um, you seem to be suggesting that um, Australian politics and public policy would be characterised more by incrementalism rather than any sort of radical change over the next um, period. But, but what sort of COVID impacts do you think are here to stay in terms of, of how we do public policy in Australia? 
I think that um, the use of expertise, the evidence-based policy is uh, has been given a boost uh, and it's not necessarily a transformation but people have become more aware of the importance of that mm. and that that will be some sort of uh, legacy. I think that the way we do work and that business operates, uh, there'll be changes there that uh, things will go back to a different normal, uh, people working from home and uh, uh, less travel and uh, that sort of thing will be uh, something that's lasting. At the level of uh, the structure of government, I think that despite um, my qualifications about the National Cabinet, that um, that will have some lasting impact, that new uh, structure. And I think that Federalism will be viewed differently. Now, this is a, a debate in progress, but mm -hmm. the states, of course, have been very active, very assertive during this crisis and uh, the relationship between the Commonwealth and the states, I think, will be changed by the crisis, but it's not quite clear the, the shape that change will take it so far. So we've seen the emergence of um, a lot of sort of instruments of collaborative governance in response to, uh, to bushfire recovery, in response to um, COVID-19 management and, and recovery. So there's, there's clearly a, a trend towards more, more collaborative governance and building stronger relationships with, with states and territories. Um, we're also clearly seeing the way in which um, data sharing between Commonwealth government and states and territories has become kind of a Trojan horse into more collaborative um, problem solving. Um, there seems to be a recognition now that um, of the importance of taking what's called a systems approach to public policy and that it's, it's, it's not good enough to be in control of your own part of the system. You need to have an overarching um, approach to the system that requires strong working relationships between Commonwealth government, states and territories. And I suppose the other thing that I would chip in here, and I'm interested in your views on this, is whether COVID-19 now means that we're focusing more on the longer term than we were previously. Because obviously pandemics um, can only really be managed through longer-term thinking, never mind um, droughts and uh, mm. the impact of, of climate. Do you, and obviously, in a sense, that gears the role of the public service, doesn't it? It gears it back towards that stewardship role, stewardship for the long term. I think we are likely to focus more on the long term at a, a planning level and a bureaucratic level because what's come through is just how things can change for the worse so dramatically. So, for example, I think we will see uh, more long-term planning in our health system and awareness that we have to keep the, the health system up to, to scratch. 
uh, I think on the economic side, there will be, uh, even though it's not all COVID, the, the whole issue of the China relationship will mean that there will be uh, more emphasis on uh, trying to be uh, self-sufficient to a greater extent on some key products, medical products, for example. Now, the government does say it won't uh, go into protectionism, but nevertheless, this question of self-sufficiency and diversification of markets, I think, will be uh, a, a big issue. And maybe just circling back to the reform question, although I would perhaps downplay the uh, extent to which this will drive reform, one area where I think it will the experience of COVID will drive reform, is aged care. And there was already a Royal Commission on aged care, but the fact that most of our deaths were in aged care, I think, has been uh, a really a goad to saying that that system must be fixed up and fundamentally reformed and that that will be a big issue next year. Michelle, thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing your time with um, the Institute of Public Administration Australia um, this morning. Um, I know you have a very, very busy schedule, so it's been wonderful hearing your thoughts on these um, fundamental issues in terms of the future of Australian public policy. Great to chat, Mark. Thanks a lot. Well, there you have it. Uh, a Work With Purpose episode with a difference. And thank you so much to Professor Mark Evans and Michelle Grattan for sharing their time with us today and with you, the audience, because, again, I know you are looking for that diversity and at Work With Purpose, we are certainly going to provide that for you. So thanks again to the team at IPA for their ongoing support for Work With Purpose. It's been a fantastic year, a program that has really made a difference and it would not have happened without the support of the team at IPA, nor would it have happened without the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. So a big thanks to them. And also a big thanks to the team back at Content Group, who are also putting their shoulder to the wheel to bring you the Work With Purpose series. So thank you to everyone back at Content Group. So uh, join us in a fortnight's time for another edition of Work With Purpose. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 